0: This is central central control, control. stand by.
1: Derek Alino. Yes. Tim? Have you ever wondered what if? What if, you did? What if
2: you oh, I have many a time. Really? Recently.
1: <laughs> Should we keep doing this? Yeah. Well, what if happens to be the topic today of our podcast that is called Transmissions from the Forbidden Planet. Oh, that's (laughs) nifty. You, of course, are Tim. And that over there is Derek. Me. Because he just called me Tim and I'm not Derek. That's right. I am. No, wait, you're Derek. Yeah. (laughs) He's the guy. You're the guy (laughs) with the guy. All of us together. We're all made of the same molecules. (laughs) (laughs) Valid point, my friend. So. The topic then, what if, and and we'll expand on that. And what would you like to say about the expansion of what we're trying to talk about here?
2: Well, the what if I think we're talking about is when uh, you know, Hollywood or a director or a creative person mm-hmm. gets a hold of a property and they think, I really want to do this. And they they hone it and they try to get it to where they need it to be. And then they try to get it made, yeah. but it never happens. And that ends up being...
1: Oh, what if yeah like a movie comes out it's maybe successful and later down the road you hear you know even though Steven Spielberg directed it what's his name was tied to it at one point or right. you know you know blah 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 that kind of thing right and we're just kind of posing the question like on some of these known situations what would the movie have been like had it this other person ended up being the director or not gotten fired off of it or whatever right so yeah buckle up yeah.
2: Hollywood politics fits into this particular subject that we're talking about here in many different ways. Sometimes Hollywood studios have a project, a pet project that they've been wanting to do because they think, we bought this book property that we think is going to make a great trilogy, or could be a director saying, ooh, I really loved this story that I honed when I was in my teenage years up to my (laughs) 20s, and now I'm in my 40s, and I'm successful, and I can finally do this little picture. Whatever that case may be, there's all of these things. And Hollywood politics gets involved because sometimes if it is the passion of the director, they sculpt it and they get ready to make it. And then Hollywood goes, you know what? The landscape for people, what they're wanting to see right now, this is not matching this. We're not going to give you the budget for this or whatever.
1: Yeah, right. Or sometimes directors have to interview for a job that they might be interested in. And executives say, okay, we'll have the meeting. But and we'll let you know at the end of the meeting or you know what I mean and then right and we even hear about those scenarios sometimes too and
2: and then even you have the unfortunate predicaments with certain directors sometimes too that they bring a project to a yeah like paramount or or warner brothers or something like that and the head of that company at that time goes oh yeah we love this we're going to give you 70 million dollars to do this and then that person ends up getting replaced, the head of that studio who okayed yeah, that and right. was passionate about that. And the new guy's like, I don't like it. <laughs> exactly. And then it goes bye-bye. Yeah, yeah. So that's just a little bookmark I right. could put at the beginning of this subject as we move on through some of these names and some of the reasons of why these projects are what-ifs. What what ifs
1: Well, then if we're going to talk about a director and it's an episode of transmissions (laughs) from the forbidden planet (laughs) I know I renewed my
2: contract. Did you renew yours?
1: Uh, Yeah, the requirement that every episode we must mention (laughs) the one and only David Fincher So
2: we put him up front so we could
1: just get it out of the way. You all know we're going to talk about him. So
3: (laughs) My first films, the super eight movies and were incredibly primitive you know I really didn't understand coverage I didn't understand how to how to segment or divide I knew that I could shoot things in slow motion that looked like the six million dollar man or 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 we knew how to kind of ape things you know we we, we, we like everybody you you start by impersonating things that you uh, recognize
1: there's quite a few things that uh he's been attached to and things didn't work out oh yeah and i think one of the more famous ones is uh, world war z part two right at one point
3: you you were you and david fincher were going to do world war z yeah two, and i'm so curious what does a david fincher zombie movie oh, even look good. like
0: oh it was good it was really good
3: right, well we we had a really good story which he shepherded really strong
0: story and uh No, the things he had planned for just hadn't been seen before. I'm sure he'll get it out on something else.
1: Um, And that was probably at the behest of Brad Pitt, I'm assuming? Yes. Because he was already
2: the star of part one and the first one didn't go as he had hoped right and he didn't get along with the director and Correct. so on so when they wanted to do a sequel he was just like you know who i do like yeah right you know who i know if we end up doing this movie it will be a good one <laughs>
1: <laughs> right is david fincher right because they right. did they had worked together on fight club and the curious case of benjamin button and seven. And seven, of course. Oh yeah, how can I? How can I not say? So they, yeah, they have quite a history together already. So, right. um, but I mean, you know, it's hard to think about that just because, for me, in my opinion, <laughs> mm-hmm. what a fucking mess World War Z the movie was. Oh yeah, um, totally. I didn't finish it. Right, And it, for me, it coincided with, uh, I think, The Walking Dead was at its peak at that point, the yeah. TV show. Yeah, and so uh, um, when the movie came out, and I tried, I'm like, sweet, I'm in the mood. You know, I love The Walking Dead, and let's see what World War Z is going to do. And there, there seemed to be, like, almost a pg pg 13 of the movie oh, that happens? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because I felt like, there, I remember the scene that finally did it for me was in some kitchen area or something like that, and Brad Pitt's fighting some stuff, and you see him step up to crush the head of a zombie, and the camera kind of does this weird zoom-in kind of thing to where all of a sudden you can't see his foot, and he stomps. And I'm right. like, that's it. I'm out. I'm out. Right. <laughs> what? In the
2: fuck knuckles is this? No, no, for sure. Uh, there was studio interference once they got involved in this thing because the minute you have, you know, the zombies that end up turning into these things that are like hordes that can do ants climbing. On <laughs> yeah, each other, right, right. You need a lot of CG work, and yeah, and then it, this one also suffered from rewrites and more rewrites and more rewrites. The first one, I mean, yeah. And so, I think you know, Brad Pitt knew. Okay, we'll. Even though we had a insufferable time making that first one and it came out and it did well, surprisingly, if I want to do another one of these, I want to make sure that we get it right this time or not. let's not even do it at all. Right. And so that's why he brought in David Fincher. And apparently David Fincher put in, from what I remember reading, was like a year of his life right. really sculpting and honing what he wanted to do with it. Man. Fincher's one of those guys who gets in there and says... This is what it's going to be. This is the price it's going to cost. Do you want to do it or not? But he puts a lot of time in it before he turns that. Right. And by the time that he got involved, because the other directors before him had looked at it or, you know, had conversations with Brad and all of that stuff. And so a few years had already passed. Right. And so by the time David Fincher had what he wanted to do, put his time in and then put what he said he wanted to do. Uh, to the studio and what budget he needed basically the, the studio which was I believe Paramount at the time just said I just think so much time has passed right What's the point? Who cares now? Right. And so David Fincher just kind of said, okay, well. And the the thing that's so frustrating, if you're a fan of David Fincher, is he doesn't have a huge output because he does take so much time. And he slowly goes over his next project to kind of make sure it's what he wants to do and it fits in this little realm and everything. So him getting lost in these ones that we're going to mention means that we lost out on another David Fincher project
1: because of that time. It probably would have been pretty interesting to see, you know, this attention to detail is like second to none. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. And he was also pushing for the hard R. He said, I won't even consider it. unless we Do an art.
1: Right. Which is good. 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 Yeah. The other thing you have to mention too, is that they're using just the title anyway, from the book, the
2: Max Brooks book. There was one scene in it. That was from the book and wasn't even done well. Right. 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 Yeah. And it's a great book. Yeah. Yeah. It was always one of those projects that was kind of, you know, weird and, when I heard his involvement, I got more interested in it, but I kind of hoped it went the way that it would. It yeah. ended up going, just because I was just like, I'd rather do, see him do something else. All right. They're coming. Ready. A, a similar situation was he put a year into his life in sculpting uh, and cultivating uh, Mission Impossible 3 at the behest of uh, Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise wanted to do it. Paramount again said, oh, it's too dark because... David Fincher wanted to do an R-rated one. Right, right. Tom Cruise was on board, but at the time, he just couldn't push it through to get an R rating, so he had to go. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea was actually another one that him and Brad Pitt were involved in for a while. Oh, wow. That was a Disney one. Right. And uh, another one that he spent about seven to nine months cultivating and trying to get done and then... It just didn't go anywhere. Disney just thought, uh, I think it, it came in the middle of when they put out John Carter, which was a huge financial flop for them. Right. And then a year before they okayed a $250 million budget on the Lone Ranger. Oh, God. <laughs> and so right in between that, I think they got a little worried and Fincher was just like, we should or we get off the pot, guys. What are we, what are we doing? <laughs> yeah. He was attached for a while for the original Blade project. Oh, wow. He was one of the front runners. And apparently he was pretty interested in it until it started leaning towards the, the villain that they did picking for the film. And he was just like, it's getting goofy now, mm-hmm. guys. Right. So he walked away from it. Oh, right. Okay. And then Rendezvous with Rama is a big one. Uh-huh. Uh, rendezvous with Rama was one of the best science fiction books ever. And it's been picked at over the the years. People have borrowed a lot of stuff from it. But the essence of Rendezvous with Rama is still there. You know, I read the book a long time ago when I heard he was a Tahiman and Morgan Freeman was attached Mm. to it. Because Morgan Freeman, apparently that's one of his favorite books. And so uh, that project was brought to Fincher by Morgan Freeman. Fincher really liked the book. But Fincher apparently said to Morgan Freeman the minute he gave him the book, he's like, there's no way anyone's going to put the money that's gonna need to, to do uh, this right, justice right because it's this is not action sci-fi this is boring sci-fi and no okay. one wants to watch boring sci-fi anymore <laughs> right right and so well, what time period did you say this was uh this was right after the game so this would have been 98 oh, okay wow okay
1: yeah 98 ish and now i'm not familiar with this title or the book or anything
2: yeah I, I would do it at complete injustice mm-hmm. by trying to describe what the plot is about because it's very dense sci-fi stuff it's great but it's really i would suggest going out and reading a synopsis because it'll probably do a better job than myself because you're stupid right exactly (laughs) exactly But then he was involved with uh, Spider-Man 1, the original Tobey Maguire 1, way back in the day before... The Sam Raimi movie.
1: He was going... Right. Before Sam Raimi, he was attached?
2: Right. He was in between when James Cameron almost did it oh. and when Sam Raimi came yeah. in. So he was sandwiched in between there because he was one of the hot new directors. Right, right, right. One of your <laughs> yeah. One of your uh, films that you saw, and I've, I've seen since you've brought it up on the show, and I actually thought it was a very beautiful looking film, weird film. It's very strange, yeah. Strange, right. but... Disney's answer
1: yeah. to Star Wars, The Black Hole.
2: Right, what an yeah. answer.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
3: the Black Hole was an interesting one because it had so many um, amazing things to bring to the table, aside from, you know, cool visuals, but we just couldn't lock down a version that everyone saw eye to eye on, you know creatively
2: but yeah they wanted to remake it at some point and he was brought in and apparently he has a little bit of nostalgic love for the original one too mm, so that's cool so he came in to try to look at the script that they wanted to do and he apparently was involved for like two months and there was they were stuck on a particular script that he was not fond of so he bailed
1: right just a little side note that's kind of unrelated to David Fincher but uh, in Andor the new fantabulous series about uh, Andor mm-hmm. The little droid that is his mother's droid mm-hmm. was purposefully designed to look like uh, Vincent, and uh, right. yeah, so, which I thought was really cool. Right. You know, to kind of pay homage to those those droids from the Black Hole movie. That's awesome. Yeah. If
2: only old Roddy McDowell was around. I'd <laughs> done
1: the voice. Or yeah. Slim Pickett's is long gone, but.
2: Yeah, yeah.
3: We have to go. No, no, I can't make it.
0: My hover stabilization's gone, my main circuit's blown, and
3: both backups are failing. You can make it. It's no use, Vincent. My useful days are finished, but part of me goes with you.
0: You'll never be obsolete. Carry on the tradition.
2: We're the best. Uh, the Black Dahlia. Right, which did get made. Yeah, got made by Brian De Palma. Not, in my opinion, very well. <laughs> right, right. It's kind of uh, boring and lackluster, right? Doesn't Jude Law star in that? Uh, no, it's uh, Josh it. Oh, no wonder you hate it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Brolin. Oh, okay. Scarlett Johansson, I believe. Oh. Um, yeah, it was just a little lackluster, and I remember feeling that... Not that I'm uh, totally against Brian De Palma films and everything, but he definitely brings... A bag of tricks that he never really sets down to all of his movies. Yeah, right. And Fincher seems to bring what he needs to a project that's not the same bag of tricks every time. Well,
1: if we're going to comment on the what if of it all, I I feel like of all of these titles so far, the Black Dahlia and David Fincher together just because of his... Maybe a little too close to seven or whatever, just but right. I think and and the fa- you know the way he did Mank and 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 captured that time period anyway, you know that right that's the what if that I really would like to see is him uh, if he had done the Black Dahlia.
2: right, right. No, I remember being super excited about it hearing when he was involved about it and then bummed when he backed out of it and wasn't yeah. involved in it. But there was, I will say in a lot of lovers of David Fincher, there was a collective groan when he attached himself to it because people were like is he ever going to do anything that doesn't have killers in it you know what I mean
1: well that, would that have been before or after Zodiac that would have been before right. Zodiac but that, yeah, there but, was but, seven and, uh, yeah
2: no I agree yeah. Black Dahlia for sure is one of those ones that I'd, I'd like to see I'd also like to see his take being a comic book fan I'd like to see what he would do with a comic book movie mm-hmm. and how different that he would come at it being that he has a, such a precise way of thinking about things and and coming at it and so spider-man would be definitely one of those ones that i would i would I, i'd like to see it through his lens uh-huh you know i'm glad he did the things he did yeah me too uh, if there was one movie when i remember hearing it was announced that he definitely was going to do it, it was going to start filming someone said he's doing a movie about facebook <laughs> and i remember uh, thinking oh uh, uh, why yeah exactly who cares? Right. I and mean, that movie comes out, and it's amazing. Right. It's just amazing. But yeah, so usually, you know, from that point on, usually anything he attaches himself to, even if the the synopsis of the story he's doing doesn't sound great, I'm like, well, I'm there, I don't care.
1: Right, right. You know. Well, I kind of remember the, the first time I heard about Mank, I was like, eh, I don't know. Right. And then seeing it, and it's probably almost one of my favorite ones of his. You know what I mean? He just has a way of doing that. Yeah all right let's um so we've fulfilled our contract to uh (laughs) sir david fincher yeah this episode david fincher coming in so we're going to go on to you know
2: probably most people consider one of the best directors who's ever lived right i think he's probably the most the best visual storyteller yeah He's just got a knack for telling a story, and he doesn't even have to have dialogue behind it, and you just completely get everything he's talking
1: about. Right. And that's Steven Spielberg, of course. Of course. Yeah, there's a big list here. You know, he's had a long career, so Mm -hmm. there's obviously a lot of stuff he could have done that didn't come to fruition, so. Right. We're going to start off with uh, a a sequel to uh, one of his original greats, and that's Close Encounters. Mm Mm-hmm which is like,
2: I, just seeing right that Close Encounters too. I'm like, ah, thank God that yeah. didn't happen. Yeah, apparently it was supposed to be Night Skies is what the original title was, the working title of what they were toying with. And yeah. this time it was going to be Bad Aliens coming okay. back. Of course, right.
3: The Close Encounters sequel was something that I... Um, really thought could be something. But the further we got away from the first one, the, the, the idea just didn't seem to gel anymore.
2: And so um, that whole thing. But here's here's the cool thing about these. Okay. So he takes Close Encounters 2, which could have been bad aliens coming down. Right. And wreaking havoc in another little small town. And right. then it starts to spread You move on to E.T., and that becomes one of his biggest hits ever at the time. Right. Within a few weeks after... For E.T. 2. He gets on the phone and says, oh, my, we got to do a sequel. This thing is huge and starts, and there's, he puts pen to paper and puts a synopsis out there for E.T. 2. And uh, again, this time it's bad aliens coming down, and then E.T. aliens have to come down and help. Oh, that sounds really dumb. Bad, yeah. <laughs> and apparently, he realized this when it went from being a big hit for him to the biggest hit for him, and yeah. he re- and he buried
1: Cause it. Because he's like, I don't, I don't want. I'm gonna s- playing with yeah. fire here, basically. Right. Is, yeah. yeah. Then you got to give him a thousand times credit for that because a lot of guys oh, yeah you know he's had some some serious fucking success at this point but that one was
2: like the one that and, and yeah I'm sure it would have been super easy to just be like I'm gonna ride this gravy chain till it yeah. yeah exactly right but what is interesting to me about those two things those two ways of thinking of how you're gonna take a concept from your first movie where it has to deal with good things and then the next time bringing it back to a small area of town yeah. these things start going wrong uh, these little aliens, these creatures start taking over a small little town. Apparently that sticks in the back of his mind because right. when he finally comes across the script for Gremlins, right. like, I can do this now and I don't have to direct it. <laughs>
1: right, right, right. Yeah, good point. Right, Yeah. Why are you son of a... So I guess there was a point where he was
2: going to do a Jaws, the sequel? They really wanted... The studio, Universal, really wanted to do a Jaws 2. He felt obliged to do it, being it was one of his... I mean, his first big, huge movie. Right.
3: With Jaws 2, what had happened is I really wanted to go make Close Encounters, but uh, Universal wanted the Jaws sequel as soon as possible, and so... As much as I was willing to direct it, time was pressing. So I got to do what I really wanted, and they still got Jaws 2, and, well, all of us had hits.
1: And so he came back and did Jaws 3D, right? (laughs) Steven Spielberg directs Jaws 3D. He brought Dennis Quaid and Lewis Gossett. (laughs) Anybody seen Jaws 3D? It's Bananas. (laughs) I'm glad, though, that, you know, let that franchise fall on its heels on, on its own merit. You know what I mean? Totally. Yeah. Bananas.
0: Bananas. All right, that's it. <laughs> Thank you, Paul.
1: It can be done with sequels like this, you know, especially, you know, a lot of times people say... You know Jaws is like a perfect script right yeah and, and yeah. you think well how do you top that and all that but then right. you know you do have I mean granted they're not as perfect but back to the future all three right. sequels were very su- or two sequels were very successful right uh so it can happen but right. man you're it's it's kind of like Lightning in a bottle, I man. was just gonna say that yeah you took it right yeah. out of my mouth
2: Uh, He was also attached to uh, the Martian Chronicles at a time, which you can probably kind of see some of his um, passion for that particular little thing. Right. Moving into War of the Worlds. Right, yeah. uh, The thing
3: about the Martian Chronicles is that it's such a fun, unique story with a danger and excitement. Plus, it's it's an invasion film, but um, inverted. That really intrigued me about it.
1: But from what I s- read about the Martian Chronicles, it's almost like a flip. It's the Earthlings going to Mars, and the Martians right. not liking it. Yeah, that's and it's a right. Ray Bradbury uh, series of books, I guess. Right.
2: Yeah. The stories, those Martian Chronicles stories, do have a bit of whimsy, so you could easily see why his attention might be directed towards it yeah. because he's like, ooh, right.
1: a big one though the one of that a lot of people
2: have called uh, an unmakeable film is the catcher in the rye right Right. Yeah. He's probably... It's probably luck kept him away from doing this one because that book has so much notoriety to it right, now right. after all of these years have passed. Because of
1: some of the assassinations that were tied to it. Right. From what I read about this is J.D. Salinger, the author, is notori- was notoriously hermitish and reclusive mm-hmm. and didn't like talking to anybody and never wanted to really allow for his stuff to be adapted. Right. But what I read is he reached out to... The person who does the talking to uh, J.D. Salinger, and that guy just kind of either forgot or never even brought it up to Mr. Salinger, right. so it, that, and it just faded off into the ether over, over time. And that's the luck part, right? right. Yeah. <laughs>
2: One uh, from my childhood that I used to love was an old Jimmy Stewart movie called Harvey. Right, right. Uh, which I really found lovely as a kid, and then uh, he almost remade it. You could see his sensibilities again turning to something. Right, like it's that.
1: Harvey's. The 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 conceit is that he's got this imaginary friend, Rabbit. Right, seven feet tall. I've never seen it. And then I introduce them to Harvey,
3: and he's bigger and grander than anything they offer me. and and when they leave they leave
2: impressed it's a very cute movie and everything and over the years he's had people attached to maybe going back and forth to it this is the the hearsay part of the whole thing but he's had everyone from like Tom Hanks involved with Mm -hmm. it which you can kind of see that whole connection Uh, Harrison Ford Mm -hmm. well you know
3: I'm, I'm a sucker for a Jimmy Stewart movie And uh, it's really hard to resist the pure heart and soul that comes with his film, Harvey. And um, the temptation is greatly there to remake it, for me, that is. But at the same time, you could easily um, upset the balance of drama and cuteness in a remake like that. So it's troubling.
2: Would I want to see a remake? No. But uh, I could see his sensibilities being attracted to it. For a remake of it, yeah. Calvin and Hobbes, Mm. this was one that that the creator of Calvin and Hobbes was always very protective of those characters Mm. and... That's why you don't see a whole lot of Calvin and Hobbes shit out there, like merchandise and stuff, except for the all the
1: pirated uh, pissing on things. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and then and it it wasn't until like you got about six or seven of the Fast and Furious in that you actually see a Calvin and Hobbes movie. (laughs) Oh wait, that's Hobbes and Shaw. Never mind.
2: Uh, Hobbes and Shaw. Yes. (laughs) But this was one that apparently it was one of Spielberg's favorite little comics, comic strips, yeah. And again, it's one of those things that is this kid, an imaginary friend, right. How's this gonna work into right. it? Right. Stuff like that. Apparently he wanted to do it animated and stuff like that, but uh, oh, that's I good. Guess... It,
1: that it would have, because uh, I yeah, was yeah. Uh, this whole time I thought you were about to say live action, and I'm like, well, that's yeah, just gonna no. be like you know, like when they did that Dennis the Menace movie or whatever. Right,
2: right, right. No, yeah, no, it was supposed to be animated stuff. That was one of the things that that the creator of Calvin and Hobbes, Bill Watterson, the, the reason he was uh, kind of interested in maybe letting Spielberg take a crack at his creation was the animation thing. But apparently this was around the time right after um, Who Framed Roger Rabbit had come out. Right. And um, the same animators from that worked on a test thing for Calvin and Hobbes. And both Spielberg and the creator uh bill he he they both looked at it and just like eh, it just doesn't feel it doesn't move right something right right yeah so they they both kind of begged off of it and then nothing's happened since so and that's probably again for the best right 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 i'm out come out wherever you are
1: uh, moving into Cape Fear, which is mm-hmm. interesting because to, for, for me, Martin Scorsese's sensibility of it is so attached. To what I know mm-hmm. of it It's hard to see that movie Any other way uh, Granted Even Scorsese's Is a remake of an old You know The old Robert right. Mitchum version Which For sure Is very You know Typical black and white And not
2: nearly as dark But um it Still contains a rape scene though That's very pivotal To that old movie right back, right back in there it's a, That made it probably Stand out more than It ever would have I
1: think it's Scorsese is the man for dark, right? Oh yeah. And Steven yeah, Spielberg. Totally. I mean, he can do dark, but right, yeah. obviously. But he does darken like a dramatic tone, you know, like say Schindler's List or right. Munich and 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 all those types of movies where you're dealing with serious tones. But this is a dude who's sick in the head, right? And right. I feel like Scorsese's just better.
2: At the time of when this project was in Spielberg's lap, mm-hmm. he was supposed to do a two run of he was gonna shoot and get Rain Man done he was supposed to do Rain Man and then go straight into from Rain Man into Cape Fear Mm -hmm. but George Lucas came to him for Last Crusade and said come on let's wrap this trilogy up Yeah, come back and direct this last one so he chose to do that and then gave these two projects away and he went directly to Martin Scorsese and apparently had to talk Martin Scorsese into taking it right right okay Uh, De
3: Niro was fascinated by that character and uh, he and uh, Steven Spielberg uh, convinced me finally that I could maybe find my own way in the story. Um, I usually find it very difficult when I do other people's material. I can't really satisfy them and I can't satisfy myself. it was a remake, yeah, it was a remake. I mean, because you, you are stuck with the same story, you know. But what I wanted to do is to enrich the characters or um, uh, complicate the psychological makeup of the family, so to speak, and uh, you, uh, quite honestly, that's a danger. That's a danger. You don't know whether you're, as I said, sinking the genre itself
2: or you're trying to enrich it. And, you know, Spielberg was like, I'll produce it, you do it. That works out, I think. Yeah, yeah. I like no, that no, movie. For sure. I do too. Yeah.
1: And this is interesting since we already talked about David Fincher. Uh, the Curious Case of Benjamin Button was had uh, Spielberg tied to it. At, right.
2: No, you can totally. This is another one of those that you can totally see if you've seen the film or you yeah. know the story at least that it comes from. Then you see you can easily see a Spielberg sensibility to right. this movie. Right. Sh- sweet. sweet. Could be a schmaltiness. Right. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And and I think he was trying to make it somewhere in the late 80s to mid 90s that era. Okay. But it just kind of got away from him, and his yeah. his attention got turned to other problems. Projects, but. Right. The last one here is the Howard Hughes bio, he almost did. Yeah. Which, again, Scorsese, Scorsese right. ended up with it. So Yeah, this project for Howard Hughes has been around a long time right. with a lot of different directors attached to it. So you have oh, right. like Christopher Nolan. He wanted to have Jim Carrey play him. And then uh, Michael Mann wanted to cast someone who didn't look anything like <laughs> Howard Hughes.
1: That's funny, yeah. It,
2: yeah. Right. it couldn't have been Adam Driver. He looks a little too
1: much like him. Yeah. Paul Giamatti <laughs> as, you have, as Howard Hughes. Right. <laughs>
3: (laughs) The Howard Hughes project has been a very um, elusive picture for many directors to try and tackle it, and I think it's hard to not want to do it all, but it's... uh very tricky story to squeeze into a time limit fit for the screen.
2: But there's been a lot of people who's who's had Howard Hughes projects in the works. Warren Beatty had one for uh, many, many years and finally put it out I think in like 2016 called Rules Don't Apply or something yeah. like that. But uh, Spielberg, he went back and forth with his and his was actually going to incorporate the whole life story all the way up to when... Um, right, hermity guy. Yeah, uh, yeah, Howard Hughes became kind of that old hermit and uh, taken over by the Mormons and such. So, I mean, I'm kind of glad that Scorsese ended his movie about Howard Hughes, The Aviator, where he did. Right.
1: Uh, So, uh, out out of these, if you could choose one to have happen, what would it be? I would
2: probably go with the Martian Chronicles
1: because it's a property we haven't seen and it would be right. something totally you know a different take on the invasion thing and
2: I think he has the right sensibilities especially at the time he wanted to make it mm-hmm. he was still in that Spielberg popcorny right, mode right. instead of you know not that it's I'm not saying it's a bad thing that he got into more serious films I think that's where he needs to be right right when he hits those things but at this time when he was exploring it I think it would have been a perfect Spielbergy popcorny movie right
1: a trend setting film that right. would go on to shape Hollywood forever the way right Close Encounters and Raiders of the Lost Ark did and know.
2: if he would have we would have already had a million us going to other planets and populating you know,
1: <laughs> right 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 thing, yeah. yeah I mean I'm looking over the list and um I I, I yeah that's the only one that really jumps out just because I don't know I don't know the books so I'm I'm curious right. I just know the very the basic synopsis that it's we go there And they don't like it But um Yeah I'd have to go with that too Because I uh, that bottom half Of the list I like it the way it is Cape Fear Howard right. Hughes oh, yeah. Benjamin Button Rain Man Right uh, Those are Those movies Came out And they're great The way they are And then too You know Like we said Close Encounters 2 Just leave the fuck off With that Leave it alone yeah. <laughs> yeah And E.T. 2 And, ET2 and Jaws, Jaws 2 We already know What happened with that Right Right Let's slide on down to Mr. Smooth, (laughs) Quentin Tarantino. Well, I'm very curious about this first one because Luke Cage, right? So he was probably wanting to do like a 70s exploitation type of take on it, I bet. Exactly. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and apparently his pitch went over really well with like two independent producers. Right. And then when it got to a studio, the studio was like... No. <laughs> <laughs>
0: right. Okay. Because he
2: did, he wanted to hire a complete unknown as Luke Cage, uh-huh. kind of build that because that would be who that character was. And then he, he, the studio, of course, wanted, well, who's the big star going to be? Though? Right, right. it's just like, well, you know, I, you know, I have this idea of this, this guy and that guy and this guy. And all of them were really obscure choices like Quentin Tarantino does. Yeah. And apparently the company was just like, yeah, no, that's right. not how you do <laughs> comic book movies, right. Mr.
1: Tarantino <laughs> right <laughs> I don't know if I'd like even if it's a weird offshoot one like this I think I'd rather him not do a comic book thing
2: oh yeah no I agree I agree I'd, yeah. I'd rather him do what I'd rather see a Quentin Tarantino movie from right. him instead of him. Quentin Tarantino does this right right yeah.
1: Like he, he did it the one time with uh, Jackie Brown, right? And right. was successful at it to, to don't screw it up anymore. Right, right, right. And I think because
2: <laughs> Elmore Leonard and he, he, because he was a fan of Elmore Leonard's books, have such a close yeah. proximity and how to tell a story and characters and right. what they like in yeah. crime and stuff that it didn't feel like he was stretching any. Right.
0: Now, look, all you got to do is lay in here and hold on to this motherfucker, all right? I'm going to tell them I'm going in the trunk to show them the goods. When
1: I open the trunk, you pop up and rack this motherfucker.
2: Man, fuck that shit. I ain't finna shoot nobody.
3: I ain't saying nothing about you shooting nobody. All you got to do is hold on to it. They'll get the idea.
1: Okay, so uh, next would be the man from Uncle, which ended up right. did get, getting made, right? Wasn't that Henry Cavill or
2: something? Yeah, Henry Cavill and that guy who's been canceled. Uh, Army Hammer, yeah, yeah, okay. And uh, Guy Ritchie directed it.
1: Oh, that makes sense, because it's English.
2: So, yeah, uh, Guy Ritchie ended up getting a hold of this property, but for a while, apparently, it was in... Now, now, there's different reports to this saying that he was hired to write it right before Pulp Fiction came out. Oh, uh, okay. Pulp Fiction came out, and then he had the clout to direct it, considered it, and then was like, I don't know if I want this to be a follow-up to Pulp Fiction. Right. And kind of was like, eh. Right. Smartly, smartly. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: To the comic book thing, we got two of them here. Yeah. Iron Man and Silver Surfer.
2: Iron Man was uh, property of uh, Fox Okay. at one time. Yeah. They owned a good amount of uh, Marvel product. And so uh, they brought in a lot of different people to talk to Mm -hmm. and see what they're... And he was one of those people that they brought in and said, how would you do this? This is coming off of him having a success writing... To romance mm-hmm. and having buzz around him a little bit on uh,
1: Reservoir Dogs, yeah.
2: Pulp Fiction had not come out yet, yeah. Okay. And so he entertained the idea, but apparently he scared the shit out of him because he was just like, "Well, you know, Demon in a Bottle is such a great." A concept for a comic book story because it shows the, you know, Iron Man's addictions. Right, right. He's like, so, and I think that a guy like this who's going to do something like this is definitely, we have to play up his alcoholism. Maybe he's on coke and maybe he's <laughs> and they were like, whoa, 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 what are you doing? <laughs> right. And so, yeah, apparently it was a very brief association mm. with that, but he did talk to him, and that could have been a what if if they wouldn't <laughs> right, have been right. scared.
1: Again, I same thing as a, Luke Cage, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not buying it.
2: No 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 yeah and then Silver Surfer was another one that apparently he was just asked to write uh-huh. and he he was just like yeah that's just completely out of my wor- I like reading the comics right but I don't want to write a story for that character
1: right uh, and I don't see him that one's it's too fantastical I think of a character
2: right. although he you know he he has apparently written a very what well, by what reports say good Star Trek yeah I've heard of so, that yeah Apparently, fantasy's not out of his realm. No, no, okay. True romance he almost directed, directed. yeah, but the studio just did not have enough confidence in him being new to do it.
1: Right. He'd only had reservoir dogs at that point. right. And so... And, and w- isn't it true that he'd written it out of sequence like the other movies? Is yes. that true? Yeah,
2: he wrote it out of sequence like most of all of his movies. Tony Scott intended on doing it that way, uh-huh. but then cut it linear. Yeah. Now, the way that three-act structure was supposed to work was this. The first act... Everybody in the movie, with the possible exception of uh, uh, Cliff Whirly, uh, Dennis Hopper, knows so much more than we do. All the characters know what they're talking about. We don't know what they're talking about. All the characters know what they did, again, except for Cliff. We don't. All right? Everybody in the movie is way ahead of the audience. The second act, the audience hears the whole story and catches up with the characters. The third act, the audience now knows more than the characters, the audience is so much more hipper about what's going on and what's happening than any of the any one of the characters in the movie. And usually, Quentin's very particular about his stuff, but he's just like, you know what, the way Tony shot it and the way he did it, and you know, he's like, it's still my material, but it's his visual huh, on top of it, right. so it works. He's like, it works.
1: I wonder how much some of the casting might have gone. I don't think Christian Slater
2: would have ever been cast in that part. Exactly.
1: Right? That's about Tarantino. what I was about to get to. I don't I don't yep. really see Quentin Tarantino being interested in Christian Slater at all.
2: I would bet if he was talking to Gary Oldman, he'd say I want you, you to be part.
1: exactly. Yeah. Instead of, yeah, uh, Drexel.
2: But didn't you miss out on him doing Drexel. Right, I know right. that's probably very complicated these days, uh, but I think he's so great in that part yeah. <laughs> as Drexel.
1: Oh, right. Being a white guy acting black. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Gotcha. Yeah.
2: You know, as, as weird
1: as Christian Slater is, you know, he doesn't necessarily carry the movie. He's okay in it, no. you know?
2: Yeah, he's okay. He, he's enough to get by.
1: Right. The rest of the movies good enough that you're like, Perfect. fuck, you know, like yeah. James Gandolfini and Patricia cat and yes, they're uh, great. yeah, Dennis Hopper as the dad is perfect yeah. that, now I feel like Dennis Hopper could have been definitely Quentin's choice yeah and Christopher Walken too Walken you know. yeah I mean he ends up using Walken in Pulp Fiction right right yeah. yeah
0: it's just murder man all God's creatures do it in some form or another I mean huh. you look in the forest you got species killing other species our
2: species killing all species including the forest and we just call it industry not murder. But I know a lot of people who uh, <clears throat> deserve to die.
1: Natural Born Killers, however. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He was not happy with that, right? I know. No. Right. He was. He could have directed that, but Oliver Stone did. And
2: yeah, he almost directed Natural Born Killers as a very low budget project. Got money to do it, and then realized that he was going to need more money for distribution and or helping with distribution of uh, Reservoir Dogs. Okay. So he had to sell it. I mean, I don't dislike Oliver Stone's version of it. I, oh, I don't either. Yeah. I don't either. I think that Oliver Stone definitely took it and said, I want to say something with this more than Quentin Tarantino had this revenge omadic story to right, tell. Right, right, yeah. He said, let's just lighten up and go for a summer action movie. That was my initial impulse his Tarantino script is great. We'll
1: play with this. John we will have fun. We'll we'll do something Arnold Schwarzenegger will be proud of. And then as
2: it developed it just got deeper and heavier. I don't know what it was.
1: Yeah, it was almost like his the retelling of Badlands in a, with a Quentin Tarantino t- twist. Yeah.
2: Right. Yeah. And and but the the thing is is most of the of his version of Natural Born Killers mostly what took place in prison. Oh, okay. It didn't leave. It was just talks about it in flashback, and most of the stuff between Mickey and Mallory was told via the shock yeah. TV journalist right. The little tiny snippets and footage and stuff like that. It's told, again, all out of order and out of sequence, right. nonlinear. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, that's how that his version would have went and and Stone put in a lot of that other stuff.
1: But there's still it's the the, the casting of Rodney Tangerfield as her dad was pretty Yeah pretty wild. Oh, it's yeah. brilliant, yeah. I liked it.
2: I, I think the movie is really well cast. Yeah. But it's there's definitely a moment in the film where it stops feeling like Quentin DNA mm-hmm. and starts feeling way more like Oliver Stone. Oliver Stone, DNA, Stone yeah, because but... he always has something he wants to tell you. Right.
1: Well, so this next one, I I, I remember you talking about this like years ago, years and years and years ago, and I really would have liked to have seen this happen, and that's the Vega Brothers. Yeah,
2: so apparently Quentin Tarantino had a uh, story in mind to bring the Vega Brothers together. Ah. So John Travolta's character, Vincent Vega from Pulp Fiction, in that movie talks about a trip that he went on to Amsterdam, <laughs> right. and uh, that was the setting for apparently the story that Quentin had come up with. So, oh. Vincent is in Amsterdam, and his brother Vic, played by Michael Madsen from Reservoir Dogs, <laughs> Vic Vega comes to visit his brother Vincent, and they get into some adventures and hijinks and in uh, Amsterdam, and so that was the uh, story for it. And, and Michael Madsen even mentions it in one of his interviews.
0: I think it was an Amsterdam theme for sure. I mean, I, I, I like John so much. I, I actually worked with him in a, in a picture, and we talked about it a couple of times, and I think that Quentin might still have it in the back of his mind somewhere. Obviously, it'd have to be I uh, <laughs> I don't know how they would work that out because we're both a little older now, but um, leave it up to Quentin. I wouldn't <laughs> be surprised if he came up with an idea. I've always wanted to do it, and so does John. So, it's funny that it never happened. But uh, I'd never say never about Quentin.
1: Which, if I don't know if, if anybody has never put this together, but uh, there's Vincent Vega from Pulp Fiction. That's John Travolta's character, and then right. Michael Madsen in Reservoir Dogs is uh, what is it, Vic? Vic. Vic, as in Victor. Vic,
2: toothpick Vic.
1: Yeah, it's Vega, right? So yeah. they say a lot of his movies are all from in the same universe, right? So. Right supposedly Michael Madsen's character in Reservoir Dogs was brothers with Vince, uh, Vincent Vega of Pulp Fiction. So right. if that had been a movie, that would have been really fucking cool.
2: Yeah. By the time he announced this, this was right after Jackie Brown had come out. And he said, uh, yeah, they might look a little bit older, but I have a way. I, I have an idea how to do it. But uh, it, it just languished too long, too long, too mm-hmm. long. But he has teased... I think in the last five years that he's going to do a novel version and bring that oh yeah so there's always that what if could be answered in that particular one but I want to see John Travolta (laughs) I
1: know I know So Kill Bill Volume 3, how would that even work?
2: Well, here's the thing on this one. So Quentin has expressed that he has been toying with an idea for a third entry. But there's speculation out there about story that I don't think ever has come out of Quentin Tarantino's mouth. And that is that Copperhead's kid, which uh, Copperhead in the movie in Volume 1 was played by Vivica A. Fox, when Uma Thurman's character kills Copperhead... Copperhead's daughter comes home and sees the dead body, and Uma's character slowly walks up to the little kid and says, it's not my intention to do this in
0: front of you. For that, I'm sorry. If you can take my word for it. Your mother had it coming. When you grow up, if you still feel raw about it,
2: I'll be And people are speculating that it'll be about her going after Uma's character kind of thing, which uh, it seems loose to me, Mm -hmm. but he doesn't call it Kill Bill 3 because Bill's dead. Right, right. But he's never said what it would be about. So that's people speculating what it is. Yeah, you know. yeah. I would rather him not touch that. I like those movies the way they are. It doesn't need another one.
1: No. Um, right. And yeah, it's just diluting the property, and he's yeah. he's he, and it's taking his time away from doing something else.
2: Right. Right. Especially since he's only got one yeah, left, and yeah, he's got one more. And it's supposedly. Right. Right. But I, I'd rather it be an original work, unless it's unless it's Vega Brothers. Bring it, then. Yeah. Bring it. Right.
1: Well, Casino Royale, huh, James Bond? Yeah.
2: Is this, like, in, in, ahead of the actual... Daniel Craig. Da- yes. Yeah. Sorry. So, uh, yeah, no problem. The uh, whole story that I heard was that uh, Quentin Tarantino was very interested in doing a prequel to James Bond and having it be Casino Royale. And in an interview, he actually talks about this. Yeah, well, I mean, part of the thing is, the reason they did Casino Royale all comes down to me. Because, well, why don't you just big yourself up while you're here? Well, It's the truth. Yeah, I mean, the thing about it is I made it a point that I said I wanted to do Casino Royale. They were already on record as saying that the movie was unfilmable. But then after I said it and talked about it for a little bit, then the big thing on all the internets was that was what the fans wanted to see. And oh. so that's when they, oh, maybe it's not so unfilmable now. And so his big thing was, though, he wanted to keep, as James Bond, Pierce Brosnan. Oh. <laughs> And so obviously they went on to make Casino Royale, but not the way he was gonna make it. And but they recast with Daniel Craig. Right, and so we got what we got. Uh, and I've always been curious about what that Quentin Tarantino one would have looked like because I did like Pierce Brosnan a lot as uh, James Bond. But the company, when he I, when they heard what he wanted to do, I, apparently it was just like, no, we're gonna do something very different. Let's do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: so faster pussycat kill kill uh right. which is a famous um kind of schlock uh, grindhouse kind of film from the 60s right right
2: yeah yeah 65 yeah. a russ myers film a nice little b movie if you're in the mood for it check it out it's a lot of fun and uh yeah th- it was reported that tarantino wanted to remake this movie because he's so fond of that old russ myers 1965 film that uh, there's been all kinds of things said, like he was about to cast a, an adult film star, uh, Tara Patrick was apparently going to be playing the lead at one point, and then also weird reports like Britney Spears was going to be in it, and uh, just a few other people. It, it was it was a lot of weird little speculations out there that I don't know was a hundred percent backed up by Tarantino, but uh, He definitely when he did death proof there was some homages to it in there And in fact one of the characters wears a shirt with the main character from faster pussycat kill kill but, yeah, yeah uh, it, right. it, this was a very popular film. I mean, it's been spoofed or mentioned in a lot of different other properties like Simpsons and Futurama and that game uh, Grand Theft Auto. It's it's mentioned or referenced in. Right, right. And so, uh, yeah, it, it just has a life of its own. And the rumors were him attached to it. you could totally see it, especially after seeing what he did with Death Proof how he made that work. He even uh, thanked Russ Myers, the director of Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. Oh yeah. In in the credits to Death Proof. So it was a big influence on him. And uh, it, it was a fun film that I, I really think he could have done something interesting with. And I would have really liked to have seen it actually. Yeah. But again, it's one of those that if he was interested in it, it just over time, it kind of, uh, out. right. Yeah. yeah. And he just lost interest, <laughs> went to
1: something else. Right. But, I mean, you know, we've come to the end of the list, and so we've got to pick one. Right. And I guess, oof. Yeah, We already mentioned Vega Brothers is probably it. Oh, yeah. and I So if, if there's going to be a number two for me, I think it would be uh, Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. I'd like to see him try and do that.
2: Yeah, me too. Yeah, that would totally be my choice too. I really would love to see what he'd do with that because I'm a fan of uh, Death Proof. So, yeah, bring that one on, man. It just it has that kitschy kind of yeah. exploitation kind of feel
1: to it that he's all about anyway. You right.
2: Know? If there's something lacking in that movie, it's definitely dialogue right. and, and seeing him him with his fingerprints of dialogue and his shot style and his music selection, that movie would be fucking rad. Right. Right.
1: And now a word from us. Ooh my favorite Pete. so let's say you want to reach out to us ask us some questions or make comments that are not negative and mean
2: no no we're very sensitive or if you want to participate in some of the questions we ask each other on the show answer them so we can see your answers right boy am i right if we
1: if you're gonna try and look for us on instagram or facebook it is tftfp podcast yeah, and we also have yes, yes. a shiny mm-hmm. spick and spam little email address Ooh. that goes by the name of tftfppodcasts at gmail.com.
2: Mm, rolls right off the
1: tongue, it does. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or right? you can just search us on Google. Yeah, and ma- make sure you like, subscribe, and review us because that helps us with the algorithm thing. <laughs> that everybody else <laughs> says and I'm supposed to say.
2: Spoken like a true professional, Tim.
1: So Darren Aronofsky is uh, a guy we'd like to talk about uh, in the what-ifs here. And Because um, the one that really stands out to me was he was attached to do the RoboCop remake. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, wow. I remember thinking that. And this was back before you know like noah and things got really weird with him you know (laughs) and so i was still really riding the aronofsky train because he had done the wrestler and black swan and right for a dream and you know the fountain was a weird one but i remember liking it at the time
2: yeah i I, liked it enough to not be thrown by it
1: right and then of course his original movie pie so um yeah i remember thinking oh wow you know what would his weird-ass, dark fucking sensibilities do to uh, Robocop? You know, I think... He probably would have taken the humor out of it.
2: Yeah, Oh, oh, totally. Yeah, I I mean, Aronofsky's sensibilities are way different than uh, Verhoeven, who directed the original Robocop, and that sarcastic bite wouldn't be there with Aronofsky. So even though in the original Robocop Uh from Verhoeven, we had that sorrowful tragedy to the character, I think it would have been much deeper with Aronofsky.
1: Right, which is like the movie that ended up getting made. You know, they tried to go dark, but then they, you know, to cut it down to this PG-13, garbage and uh it lost everything that it was supposed to be it lost yeah the all the coolness of the old it lost all the parody it lost all of that you know and then didn't really gain any of the darkness that it had right so i feel like uh aronofsky could have done a pretty freaking cool version of uh, robocop
2: now there were rumors that uh darren aronofsky was actually looking at uh, billy crudup to play alex murphy yeah yeah wow and i remember reading that particular rumor and thinking that could work yeah that is really good i think he's dr manhattan man <laughs> right <laughs>
1: yeah that's a guy right right yeah that would be cool that would mm-hmm. uh, that would work yeah yeah i was all for it i'm just trying to have fun and I, I think for the first time in my life i you know every single film i've done so far I've been the only person in the room who wants to make the movie. Huh. And I kind of am excited about doing a film where I'm um, actually everyone wants to make it. So apparently, you know, whatever happened happened and the garbage we got is the garbage we
2: got. <laughs> I think I think what happened is he turned in his treatment. He right. didn't get as far as a script. He turned in his treatment and the, they got the company they got scared because they saw how dark he was going with
1: it. Oh yeah. And they probably were thinking, already thinking ahead of time. It's got to be PG thirteen because everything, mm-hmm. everything's PG thirteen these right. days.
2: Right, they have to get the teenagers in the theater. Right, and it's like, like fucking shut up. And unfortunately, studios being fearful of anything beyond PG thirteen will plague Aronofsky through many of the ones we're going to mention. Yeah, right. <laughs> next one up is Batman Year One. Oh, wow. See, Aronofsky was there before Nolan. Yeah. And uh, the company was trying their best to get away from the Batman and Robin.
1: Yeah. The Schumacher (laughs) years.
2: Right. That disaster. So uh, they were talking to Aronofsky, and he came up with uh, doing a film version of Frank Miller's comic Year One. Uh And apparently uh, Aronofsky was working pretty closely with Frank Miller, who created the uh, graphic novel of uh, Batman Year One. Uh And they came up with a script, and Warner seemed to be happy with it, but Aronofsky really wanted to be low-budget like a taxi driver French connection kind of thing and make it dark and rated R right and Warner Brothers was like yes yes no <laughs>
1: <laughs> right because they're trying to sell toys to right
2: exactly yeah and so that is one of those ones that uh he he had it for a while it seemed like it was going his way and then they shifted to Nola uh, yeah you know yeah. and so uh I would love to see what that looked like but At the same time, what I have, Batman Begins, I would hate to trade out.
1: Yeah, I agree. I Mm. agree. If there was just a way to have both.
2: Yeah, unfortunately, we have to choose. (laughs) And then the last notable Aronofsky what if that we'll mention is his version of the Wolverine that he was hired to do. Right. Now, of course, Aronofsky had already worked with Hugh Jackman before Uh on the fountain, right. So, I mean, obviously Hugh Jackman saw something in Darren Aronofsky while working with him on the fountain and said, this guy could bring something unique to the Wolverine character?
1: Probably the Logan movie that you know what I mean? Way years later, he was like, right. can't we do this way back here with Aronofsky's sensibilities? Right. Yeah, that would be fucking
2: rad. Yeah, an Aronofsky take on Wolverine? Hell yes, please. I mean, we're definitely gonna make something great, you know, but it, it, it will be very
1: different, you know, and that's that's you know, what I do. It's, uh, it's a, a standalone piece that has nothing okay. to do with anything in the in the whole franchise or in that universe.
2: Now, the story of Aronofsky's Wolverine centered around a 1982 comic book that came out written by Chris Claremont and illustrated by Frank Miller. So Aronofsky's teaming up with his old Frank Miller pal from the Batman days. Uh And uh, they're trying to get this one off the ground and use that comic book as a leeway to the script. Not sure if that was forced by Fox or something, but Aronofsky, of course, pushes it and goes very, very dark with it. Yeah. And the R-rated, which he really wanted to do in R-rated, was not only coming out of the movie violence, but also disturbing images from the violence. And that's where I think the company started getting a little scared. Yeah. And the further they got into production, they started the company started pushing back on Aronofsky's disturbing images and violence and stuff, and saying, well, maybe we should leave the door open for like a PG-13 version. Because they were getting nervous. They didn't quite understand...
1: Not at that time, they weren't willing to take that risk. Right,
2: exactly. So they started getting cold feet. Aronofsky said, see ya. Uh And so then the company... And I think Hugh Jackman brought in James Mangold at that time to really take the project and get it to the finish line. Uh And he had... He, he okayed the stipulation of like, Let me film an R-rated right. And then we'll tone it down For PG-13 theater release And then okay. have an R-rated release Or an unrated release on DVD at, Because that was a big thing at the time So you have two different versions on DVD Right, right But James Mangle thankfully I, Probably more because of Deadpool than anything else James Mangold got to come back And do Logan And give everyone the, the Wolverine movie They really wanted to see Exactly but it's hard to not wonder what would Aronofsky's Wolverine look like to have his kind of passion and tragedy and, and gore put on that character.
1: Right. And it's funny though when you when you look at those three properties that are very kind of sci fi fantasy. Right. And, and and then you look at what he has done. Mm-hmm in his career from beginning and there's nothing comes even close to that nope so I mean maybe the closest thing is the fountain right that's probably the closest thing to something as fantastical as yeah right. and um, so or Noah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah because God knows that didn't happen <laughs> Don't you, God? <laughs> well, who, who built, built the, the ark? ark? Noah,
0: Noah. <laughs> who built
1: the ark? Brother Noah built the ark.
0: <laughs> Didn't old Noah build the ark? He built it out of a hickory bark.
1: For you, what, of the... What would you choose out of those?
2: Like I said, I mean, I would love to see what he'd do with Batman Year One, but I'm not enough to sacrifice what we got, so I would probably have to go the Wolverine.
1: Yeah. Oh, really? Okay.
2: Yeah. Uh I'm
1: going RoboCop just because we got the garbage we got. Right. <laughs> and we have Logan. <laughs> there is right. there it, the void is in the RoboCop void if we're going to remake it, you know what I mean? Right. Otherwise leave the Verhoeven one, you know, or even 2. I like, you know, you and I are yeah, like me too, yeah. Irving Kirshner fans of uh, yep. RoboCop 2, but not a lot of people are.
2: Yeah, what do they know?
1: For me it's RoboCop. I would have loved to have seen his take on RoboCop. Oh yeah. So let's jump on over to uh, just a single, a couple singles. We one we've mentioned a little earlier, but we're going to Star Wars real quick, and that's the, the controversial solo movie. <laughs> right. uh, was originally Lord and Miller, and uh, apparently Kathleen Kennedy and and the crew over at Lucasfilm saw what they were doing and was like, no. No. Uh,
2: we don't We're like not having this. You're being a
1: little too cheeky. Yeah, you're being a little too stupid with it. Right. So they were fired and then replaced with Ron Howard. Right. Um,
2: and I'll tell you, I was a little skeptical about going into Solo just because of all of the very public issues mm-hmm. that that movie had during filming when the firing of Lord Miller and bringing in Ron Howard having to reshoot a lot of the movie. I thought, uh-oh, this is going to be a disaster. They're already heading into trouble right now. And uh, they managed to come out in that movie very unscathed, in my opinion. So... Bravo to them.
1: Yeah, it got, it got wailed well on, and it should, I don't think it should. Now there's like all this, like, we'll do a miniseries and oh, it's, yeah. you know, on Disney+. It's
2: getting that post-after-release love when it got so much hate on release. So, so
1: Lord and Miller, I kind of suspect that that might have been the right call that, uh, yeah. that Kathleen Kennedy made. You know, she gets a lot of shit for uh, uh, some of the stuff she's done.
2: Even, and I think probably even at that time, maybe. Yeah, you no, know, she was totally getting a lot of shit at that time. And they were very popular, Lord and Miller, at the time because of some of the projects they've done. I'm not bashing on them or anything. I just think that definitely their sensibilities were not aligned with what they wanted for their Star Wars property at the time, and it was a good fit to part ways. Yeah,
1: because you figure the success of their Lego movies, uh, it's all parody, and and making fun of, and then, you know, you run the risk of, that's probably what happened, is they were almost... Yeah, I have a sneaking suspicion
2: that's what ended up happening to them, is they got in there, and then they realized, oh, geez, you know what, we might not be the right guys for this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. Then of course another what if is, and I'm glad it is a what if, and uh, it's the guys that were called in from Game of Thrones to do their trilogy of films. Benoff and Weiss, yeah, yeah, uh,
1: yeah. The guys from the original Game of Thrones series were very much attached to do their own trilogy, and we had no nobody knew what era or what content. It was a complete mystery to that. And I remember you and I were both very excited about that concept until... (laughs)
2: There was a season final that everyone saw.
1: I was going to say, until the (laughs) final season of uh, Game of Thrones came out and we were like, what the fuck is this? And I believe it seemed as if Kathleen Kennedy said the same thing. (laughs) Yeah, she was
2: like, "We can fuck our shit up all by ourselves. We don't need (laughs) your (laughs) help." But uh, Uh, those guys, though, I mean, they uh, they had something for a while. But I don't.
1: They made it sound like they said, "No, we've got other stuff we want to do." But, no. And we yeah, left they... the project, and I'm like, I don't think you did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: I demand proof, you guys.
1: <laughs> but who knows? You right? Know. Yeah. Only they know.
2: Well, whoever decided to leave, I'm glad they did. That was a missed bullet for us, man. Whew. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Next up is, well, since we mentioned him so much in uh, Steven Spielberg's list, uh, Mm -hmm. we're going to talk about Martin Scorsese directly now. Finally. Gee whiz. So um, this is interesting. And I didn't know this until you made this list, but he was the first choice of Francis Mm -hmm. Ford Coppola. To direct The Godfather 2, which I feel like that's kind of bold on Francis's part because he had only done Mean Streets at that point. Well, you
2: know, he he had done a lot of early uh, independent films for Roger Corman, and then he went right from that into Mean Streets, which was a big Warner Brothers production. And uh, Francis had seen some of his early work and said, This kid would be good. Mm -hmm.
3: It's in the best interest of all the fans. Francis directed Godfather 2. I would have, I was just so nervous even touching that. property
1: springboarding off of what I just said, the executives at the studio were like, Fuck that (laughs) shit.
2: Right. Well, well, Coppola tells that story that uh, he was asked to do the sequel. Yeah. He said, There's no way I want to ever do another Godfather film. Right. He had a horrible time on that first one. So he kept pushing, I'll produce it, I'll write it, and here's some great directors, including Scorsese, let them direct it and I'll watch over them. They the company kept pushing back on us saying we don't want other people, we want you. So he said he ended up giving them three stipulations he thought that they would never agree to and uh, the studio finally came back and was basically like yeah you got it whatever you want (laughs) (laughs) right
1: right right. so
2: that's why we ended up not having a Martin Scorsese directed Godfather (laughs) 2
1: yeah so and and that worked out because that those two movies you know everybody says that as far as original and sequel go it's one of the best oh
2: yeah right. right so I mean obviously Coppola saw Scorsese had what it took to do something like that but
1: yeah He's got the sensibility for it. Now, obviously, he goes on later on to do some of the greatest gangster films ever made. Right?
2: No, I mean, it's not until Goodfellas in 1990 that Martin Scorsese makes a mafia film that's even in contention on the list next to the Godfather movies. Right.
1: Yeah, correct. Uh, Beverly Hills Cop, he was supposedly, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So was that kind of the in between um at the eddie murphy coming on or is that yeah. and 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 when Sylvester Stallone is
2: attached no, or no so Stallone is attached for a while they kind of cycle through a lot of directors I think because D- Stallone wanted to direct yeah and they were having issues because Stallone kept adding things that added stuff to the budget so then Stallone left and said I'm gonna go make uh... Cobra <laughs> right right <laughs> yeah so in between that time where Stallone left and before Eddie Murphy came on they were cycling through some directors and they offered it to uh, Martin Scorsese apparently he looked at it entertained it for a minute and then was like yeah you know I'd, I'd rather do something else
1: oh right yeah. witness is another one and that's mm-hmm. similar time period isn't it yeah, yeah early yeah. 80s yep. uh, They're
2: like a uh, year apart
1: uh, which is a great movie
2: uh, Witness. Witness is a great movie. Yeah, yeah. Harrison Ford. Yeah, Kelly McGillis, and uh, before her Top Gun days. Yeah, right. Um, and you got to remember that this is during a time in Scorsese's career where he's not doing all that well, and he won't be doing all that well till '87 when he finally does a sequel for the first time, and that's Color of Money. Right, right. And both Witness and Beverly Hills Cop were. Huge hit so he turned down a profitable movie something that could have been in favor of his career Mm -hmm. to end up doing other things until he gets to Color of Money and then that puts him back on course
1: yeah right
2: Now, this next one we're going to talk about, I think, is the one that will haunt Scorsese for the rest of his years for turning down, and rightfully so.
1: Oh yeah, <laughs> Dick Tracy is one, right? Yeah, I, I was looking this up a little bit, and just Warren Beatty was attached to be Dick Tracy yeah. at this point, but for a long uh, period yeah, of time. long period of time, and um, yeah, I think one of the one of the big names that was first attached to it was John Landis, mm. and um, right. The whole Twilight Zone court case thing for the death of Vic Morrow and those two... The two kids, yeah. uh, ...kind of consumed his life, and he had to obviously drop out of it, so...
2: Apparently Beatty wasn't really crazy about him, though. Apparently, because Beatty Beatty liked the property for such a long time, because it had been gestating since the early 70s, Mm and it was at a time when it was supposed to be made Dick Tracy, that is... It was going to be made in the style of modernizing it and making it like a French Connection-y kind of thing. Oh, okay. you know, early well, that, 70s kind of co- yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. That was where they were going with it and everything. By the time it got to Landis's hands, yeah. Warren Beatty had been circling it right. for a long, 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 long time. And Landis was saying, well, you know, you, it has to be a period piece, and you have to make it kind of goofy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You have to make it kind of funny. Right. you got to make it this, and you got to make And putting his own spin on it and everything... And uh, apparently Beatty liked that he wanted to do a period piece, but uh, didn't like that he was going goofy with it, which is really funny. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Especially if you've seen the movie that ended up being made.
1: Yeah, and I I guess... Martin Scorsese was an old-timey fan of the comic book and was interested in uh, trying to see it through, but then I think it just fizzled out over time, right? Time ran on too long, maybe. So
2: Beatty had been attached to the film and trying to get the film made anyway since the early 70s or 75, somewhere around there. And stayed with it over time, left, came back, left, came back, until eventually in the mid-80s, he ended up buying the rights to the character completely Uh of Dick Tracy. That way, he didn't have to haggle with any directors who wanted to do it and they would have say, or movie companies or anything like that. He could do whatever he wanted with the property. Uh. And so then he started shopping around other directors that maybe potentially he liked or wanted to work with. And that's where he started talking with um, Martin Scorsese. Martin Scorsese comes in.
3: Dick Tracy was an interesting project when I was first thinking on doing it. It had many areas to explore as far as uh, tone and um, character presentation, but inevitably projects like that come down to agreement on vision and there just wasn't on that particular
1: picture.
2: And then at that time he ends up having Goodfellas land in his lap. So he decides to do that.
1: More power to all of us. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. He's so. just like, I'm going to go do a real mom. Right, right. Well, and I think off of the success of uh, Tim Burton's Batman kind of oh, yeah. is what really got it pushed through, right? Because then it's, right. A, it's a comic book property. and then.
2: The only reason it had steam when it got to John Landis's hand is because Superman came out.
1: Right, right, right. And so... Wow, yeah, so that sat around for a long time. And then, you know, it, I've, I remember having the VHS of it and all that stuff, and it's a it's a goofy-ass movie. Oh, yeah, it's
2: all over the place. and Way Tom over the and, top, and, yeah. yeah. But Warren Beatty ended up directing it himself, so he only has himself to, to love or hate right. for it. Yeah, exactly. And, right. you know, he seems to love it, so. <laughs> but one of the things that I find very interesting about it, even though Disney made that movie, spent the money on the budget, and it went over budget, they, you still can't go to Disney Plus and find it playing on there because Warren Beatty still owns the majority rights to the Dick Tracy character. So they have to ask him if they can play it on there. And, and not that I think that they're losing sleep over not being able to play Dick Tracy. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then last but not least... Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio were going to reunite on their own version of an Alexander the Great movie. Oh, okay. And uh, this one was about to be ready to go into production at the time when Oliver Stone's version Uh, was greenlit. And so uh, when he heard that, Scorsese was like, nah, nah, let's not do it. Right,
1: right. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense uh, Well it's too bad Because The, uh, the Oliver Stone one Is panned You know quite a bit And apparently yeah. Not very good I've never seen it Oh okay uh,
2: I have it's, it's okay I guess Yeah, yeah.
1: Okay, uh, but and it, it did terrible numbers, right? Yeah, yeah,
2: exactly. It yeah. it bombed pretty good, and and so in that sense, it's good that uh, Martin Scorsese didn't get to go ahead. Yeah, because if his movie would have come out, I have a feeling, even though it was Leonardo DiCaprio and Martin Scorsese back together again, uh, people just weren't interested in watching an Alexander the Great movie. So it might have bombed, and he didn't need that. So.
1: Well, and that's that's such a big story, you know, and that was part of the problem I've, I've heard from some, some people. Rather than pick a time, mm-hmm. Oliver Stone, rather than pick a, a, an important battle or whatever, he tried to squeeze the whole life story, yeah. and then that guy's life was pretty broad and dynamic, and, yeah. and it, yeah, it feels it like two,
2: Cliff Notes. Really.
1: Right. It probably would have been served better as like a, an HBO miniseries or oh, something. You yes, know?
2: definitely, yeah. <laughs> Alright, so uh, what do you think out of these? What would be my pick of wanting to see him do? Yes. Yeah, uh, you know, this is an interesting list uh, but I don't want to see him take on Godfather as much as I'd like to see what his look would be. I'm happy with what I got with that. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I'd have to lean towards uh, Dick Tracy actually. Uh-huh. I'd like to see his Dick Tracy, what he'd do with it with full creative control. So I I guess I would like to see what he would do with the characters, how he would fit them into this world of Dick Tracy and how outlandish he would go with it. I mean, I know he wouldn't go as outlandish as Warren Beatty did with that movie with, you know, makeup and and, crazy hairstyles. Right.
1: and All of that. I'm struggling with all these. I mean, I guess maybe I would rather see knowing the Oliver Stone thing was a bomb. I, I guess I'd give that one out of this list.
2: Right, right,
1: right. I, I, I guess Alexander the Great is the only one I can really pick, but I'm not really like chomping at the bit either. I feel right, like, right. like like I've said it, it it should be an a, like an HBO miniseries and not right. a mo- not a two hour movie.
2: I guess my second pick would be the really last temptation of Christ. If only he could. <laughs> <do that. laughs> Moving on to John Carpenter. He has the biggest list of any director we've talked about on this show thus far.
1: There's a lot to talk about here. Oh, yeah. I will have to cruise through some of these. There's such a big list. Right. But, uh, yeah, yeah. Firestarter, mm-hmm. which, uh, which he had. Yeah.
2: And then later, yeah, he, uh, he did the thing that came out and didn't do well. And the company basically said, we don't want you anymore. <laughs> right. But I, I look at that as kind of a blessing in disguise because Firestarter was not the Stephen King novel he was cho he should have adapted. It was the one that he ended up getting later, and that is of course
1: which is Christine later on, yeah. right? Yeah. Rather than Firestarter, yeah. And F- Firestarter fizzled out. Yeah. I remember it not being that great. It
2: was a goofy concept. I think that I mean years later, I went on to read both the novels, and even the Christine novel is better than the Firestarter novel in my opinion, and. so, so uh, I just think Carpenter. I mean, to this day, I think he looks back on Christine as kind of more of a negative movie. <laughs> right. uh, but I think it's a really strong movie and a good uh, Stephen King uh, adaptation mm-hmm. that's brought to screen. It's got creepy moments and it's really good. Whereas Fighter Starter, I just, I mean, he maybe Carpenter could have done something cool with it, but uh, I have my doubts on that. Oh, yeah. I'll stick with my Christine. And then, of course, we have Carpenter being offered Santa Claus the movie. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I remember seeing
1: that in the theater when it was new with oh, John yeah. Lithgow. and, yeah. and uh, yeah. Yeah. Dudley
2: Moore. Yeah. I, I saw it in the theaters too. And uh, so the Sulkins are the producers behind the Christopher Reeve Superman movies. Right. They are the producers of this Santa Claus the movie. And they wanted it to be a big extravagant thing. Went out to the big directors and asked them. And John Carpenter was on that list of directors. Right. right. So they go to him. Apparently he shows interest. He looks at the script, says, I'd want to change some things and that was fine with them they were fine with him changing things in the script i think where they started having their issues is he wanted to do what he had done in all of his past films which is john carpenter's halloween yeah or john carpenter's the thing and they were like mm, no right right exactly and so they were like you could put directed by but just not john carpenter's santa claus the movie and he was just like no then i don't want to do your movie and they were like Okay, fine. (laughs) (laughs) And that was that apparently. So. There you have it. How does this sound to you, Tim? John Carpenter's Top Gun. Now this is one of those movies that in interviews, John Carpenter has revealed that uh, he regrets turning it down in retrospect now. Oh, okay. Because he said he read it and was just like, who cares? <laughs> this is a bunch of people flying around. Who cares? How is this going to be interesting? All right. And he said that when he saw what Tony Scott did with it, he was just like, he actually made it visually interesting. Right. So. But who's to
1: say John Carpenter could have done... What Brid, what Tony Scott did, you right? Know what I
2: mean? Exactly. No, and, and being that John Carpenter didn't like it or didn't respond to it, his passion wasn't there. So I'm glad he didn't do it.
1: Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I, I that just doesn't. In my mind, it's not a good fit. I, uh,
2: John Carpenter, when his passion is not there, you get something like Village of the Damned. Yeah, you don't need that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Right.
1: So, this is a weird one, The Golden Child, that Eddie Murphy uh, asian influence movie.
2: Uh, yeah. There's there's a weird... So, it has a Charles Dance in it, which I love that guy. Yeah. He's the villain in the movie, and he turns into this weird bat-like character at the very end. Right, like right. Like demon character. That's the only thing in that whole movie that screams john carpenter ish to me right but apparently john carpenter said that
3: uh, with the golden child i kind of liked the story but not the kid aspect of it and they wouldn't drop that part of it so uh you know i said no thanks
1: and i also heard too that he came across the big trouble little china script and said i like this better anyway
2: yeah yeah
1: and and kind of said I'll, I'll just go do that which is right. which is fine which is great. Yeah. And they, these movies are both, these movies are like kind of riding off of the Raiders of the Lost Ark kind of craze oh, yeah. of like adventure. Yeah. You know.
2: Well, also too, at that time, Eddie Murphy was box office gold. Anything they put that guy in did a ton of money and Golden Child was a big hit. Even though, I mean, in my opinion, it wasn't the greatest film, but it was a big hit. Right. So, Halloween 4, how
1: is he attached to that?
2: Uh, So, the people who held the rights to the Halloween series in 1987 went back to Carpenter and approached him to come back to the series. Because in 88, that would have been the 10-year anniversary of the original uh, Halloween film coming out. So they went back to him and said, hey, come back and do a new one. you know. Right. And so uh, Carpenter apparently said, the only way I'd want to come back to the series, because when he did the third one, he did it without Michael Myers because he wanted to get away from that. So he said, I'd come back if we could do something really unusual. But the stipulation from the people who held the rights was basically you have to have Michael Myers in it. Right, right. And so he and the original producer... Debra Hill and he got another writer and they all came up with this idea that they liked turned in the script mm-hmm. and that script is bonkers. It's like takes place 10 years later in Haddonfield the town where the first two movies took place mm-hmm. and that town has outlawed Halloween because of the events of the first two films.
1: Yeah, okay. And so
2: 10 years later this new person moves into town celebrates Halloween and all of a sudden that ignites the ghost of Michael Myers to come <laughs> back and then more killings take place and people start seeing the ghost of Michael Myers it's just the weirdest script you've ever seen so they turn that in and the uh, people who own the rights to halloween who wanted carpenter back and told him yeah do whatever you want with the script look at the script and then they're like yeah we don't want this thanks anyway
1: (laughs) we don't want that ghost of michael myers (laughs)
2: yeah so just like that john carpenter's halloween Four died huh
1: yeah that's for the best
2: A creature that we are very familiar with here, since we did a Universal monster show, uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon. <laughs> right. The Universal went to John Carpenter, asked him to do a remake of it. He looked at the script, wanted to change it. Apparently, they did not want him to change the script all that much, and so he ended up bowing out of it. But, uh, I mean, one of the reasons why it is he did the Thing remake for Universal, so he didn't want to be in a boat where he was doing a script that he wasn't sure of. Right. And did it anyway. and. And it came out and bombed. At least, if he did the thing the way he wanted to, and it bombed, he at least could have uh, peace of mind that, well, at least it was what I wanted, kind of thing. So. Exactly. Yeah.
1: And then a, a thing miniseries, huh?
2: Yeah. Apparently, he was approached, and I—it's vague on which. Network wanted to do it some say sci-fi which is scary yeah but others do say like uh, Showtime HBO uh-huh. uh effects and uh, there's a bunch of one TNT stuff like that wanted to pick it up after the events of the original film he did oh okay uh, a team goes in after the events of the first one collects stuff and then they realize that when they're that is all built up in modern times again and reestablished there are elements left there that sort
1: yeah. of start to like we to talked change. about in our thing. episode, right. there's no way to get rid of all of that DNA right. or blood or molecules.
2: And he was interested in it enough to stay with it for a while, but I guess the, whatever station or cable network that was involved with it got cold feet and well, they pulled the plug on
1: it. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm fine with that. Especially now that that movie in the last three years has become everybody's f- like favorite horror movie, right. you know, it's like just great, great. Leave it. I mean, I know they're still f- talking about doing more and blah. know. Right. Yeah, I don't, I don't,
2: the Blumhouse remake. Uh-huh. Yeah. So that's the end of his extensive list. Right. What do you pick? What What do I
1: What would I pick out of those?
2: Yeah. Hmm. I think Santa Claus. <laughs> that's what you
1: pick. <laughs> right. I knew it. I knew it. Now I think I think I'd like to see him attempt the creature from the Black Lagoon.
2: Yes, that's my pick too. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: Just because it's such a prize property of mine, and like, like he, I think he did an amazing job redoing. Oh yeah, uh, the, thing. the thing from Another World. He made and, it better. Yeah, he made it way better.
2: Yeah, and out of uh, out of all of the things on the list, it's the one title that piques my curiosity. Right. I think he could do it. I mean,
1: granted, you know, part of the success of the thing is is Rob Bottin and his oh, yeah. genius and and what he did with that. You know that without that element would that movie yeah. have been anything near what it is no right.
2: so yeah no and I you know the the thing is definitely one of those perfect storm kind of movies all the right people coming together all the right times and it just made magic and but I feel that Carpenter could pull off the creature from the Black Lagoon yeah
1: last but not least the finale Stanley Kubrick now, like we mentioned with David Fincher, who's a very similar uh, style, yeah. you know, as far as detail, or, or prep, and uh, right organization, and
2: if there's any director we can we can list that makes David Fincher look lazy,
1: <laughs> it would be Stanley Kubrick, right? <laughs> yeah, and uh, oh, you know, at the same time, you know, like we were saying, you, we don't get a lot of stuff because he takes right. his time curating the films before and after. I
2: was just reading something that's contributes to what you're talking about is with Eyes Wide Shut, mm-hmm. which came from a German uh, novella Right. that when he was shooting Spartacus in the 60s right. he, he and Kurt Douglas were not getting along. Uh-huh. So much so that the company that was over the movie, that was financing the movie the, the studio, they basically said, we can't fire the director and Kurt Douglas is the biggest actor we have right now you guys have to work out your shit. So they sent them to a counselor oh, okay. <laughs> that they both had to go to for a few weeks. Well, what's and funny that-
1: about that just before you finish that is that Kirk Douglas is the reason Stanley Kubrick got the job. Right. Because of paths of glory. Right. Right. Cause they were going through directors like crazy beforehand. Right. And that's probably why they said we can't, we can't buy her another director. Right. Especially since you're the one that told us to hire this guy.
2: <laughs> right. And, and it got along great on Pass of Glory, but by the time they got to Spartacus, I guess Stanley came in as a favor and then realized he didn't, wasn't crazy about the script and was changing a bunch of stuff. And some of the stuff he was wanting to change yeah. was because Kurt Duck. So anyway, they go to counseling and the counselor, the guy who's over them, gives Stanley this book this novella that he says oh, he's okay. like you're really deep and cerebral you you might like this <laughs> it's about the exploration of marriage and sex and dark and seediness and stuff like that oh wow and he read it then and after he did 2001 had enough money to buy the rights to the book, and was fucking around with that movie from that time yeah. all the way to when 99 when that movie yeah was that's
1: time. 1968 right. was right 2001 was released and right yes yeah, so that's pretty crazy all right Wow. Well, that tells you, yeah, that he sits on something and thinks about it and thinks about it. Right. I think one of the more famous films that got missed by him is the Napoleon story, only because he was pretty deep into it by the time.
2: He had a card catalog, like a library, they say, that was set up. So he jotted out every aspect of Napoleon's life that he could talk to historians and read every book. And put it in a card catalog so if he wanted to know what was Napoleon doing when in his 20s, oh, he was here in this location. Like they they said it was weird how Mm -hmm. meticulous he was on this stuff. So he had it all set out, how he was going to film it. Right. I mean, all of this stuff went through the trouble, was ready to go and shooting, and then that Waterloo movie came out from a different studio. Yeah. The studio that was going to finance Napoleon got cold feet and said, yeah, we can't do this.
1: Because Waterloo didn't do well. Right. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I wonder, too, if, you know, the fact that another that movie came out, would it have have kind of soured the idea for him a little bit? Or was he too far along to?
2: He was so fascinated by the story. And apparently some of the stories say that he actually saw he went to see Waterloo Uh to see, am I going to be copying? Right. And he said that the minute he saw it, he's like, oh, this movie is not doing anything that I'm going to do. That's not even touching the surface of the stuff I want to do. So we're good. So he read this was apparently to him. This was the one that got away.
1: Yeah, right. Yeah. I was going to say he basically took all of the a lot of the pre-production stuff and uh, all of that and turned it into Barry Lyndon. And uh, right you know, which is a great movie on its own. Right. And of yeah. course, cause it's a Stanley Kubrick movie, but, uh, right. <laughs> and so we have that instead, you know? Right. Yeah. So exorcist one and two, huh?
2: Right. So exorcist one and two, uh, the first one he was offered and apparently looked at it and looked at the script and didn't really think it moved well for him and wanted to play with it a bit. Uh, so, uh, he brought up some of the changes he wanted, and they decided right. not to do
1: psychological. It. I bet. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Because we know that ends up becoming The Shining later right. on, right? Yeah. <laughs>
2: right, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, they, they he t- he ended up passing on the first Exorcist. They offered him the second Exorcist, and apparently, very weirdly, if you know anything about The Exorcist too, he liked the story better, was very interested in pursuing it, but then The Shining kind of fell on his lap. Okay. Apparently, he was really good friends with George Harrison and Paul McCartney Uh of Beatles fame, in case anyone doesn't know. (laughs) And uh, they, at one point, wanted to do a Lord of the Rings movie, and they asked him would you be interested in doing it? And he had read the book apparently before, but said, I didn't really like it the first time I read it. Let me go back and reread it. And they said that the next day he called them, he had read <laughs> the, the whole
1: book. book yeah. It was just huge.
2: And he was like, no, I'll pass. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. A little too small T for him, I think.
2: Right. Oh, he probably knew too. He was like, man, this movie is huge. There's no way they'll let me do this the way I want to. Oh, yeah. Go. Right. All right, Tim. This what if is just for you. One of your favorites. AI. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah, I know. Well, you. I think,
1: uh, well, that ended up being a Steven Spielberg property, right?
2: Well, so Stanley Kubrick had been cultivating that particular project AI for a long period of time. Many, 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 many years right. like we've been talking about. So uh, he cultivated it and got it closer to how he thought he wanted it and when he looked at what he had at the time that was finished he was like this, is, this doesn't fit my sensibilities but it does fit Spielberg Right. Stanley began talking to me about it in the mid 1980s
3: and in the mid 1990s he actually called me again we had talked many many times during that, uh, those 10 years and then one day he said I think I have a great idea I produce it you direct it and I kind of took me back I didn't quite understand what he meant by that. And I said, what, you mean you want me to direct the movie you were going to direct? And he said, yeah, I'd like, I'll produce it for you to direct.
2: All of the artwork, all of the font for the film, all of that, all, all the stuff that was laid out on pre-production. Yeah. That's all Stanley. Okay. Basically... Spielberg was just a director for hire on this. Right. Yeah. This was, <laughs> if you watch it too, it's it's, it, uh, it's a lot of people's issues with it. Uh, different from yours, but a lot of people's issues with it is the movie's bleak. Oh very bleak oh. and this was what Spielberg says he's like he finds that funny because he's just like Stanley found this the most hopeful of all of the stories <laughs> he ever told right
1: right right <laughs> yeah well because of the you know that goes way in the future and
2: right right right
1: yeah but it feels like humanity's lost and you know
2: right yeah that's exactly yeah yeah that's a huge that's Stanley Kubrick happy ending
1: <laughs> <laughs> right right yeah and you know there's kind of a Almost a vague similarity between the end of that weird ending of uh, uh, 2001 that t- oh, yeah. to AI, you know. Yeah, yeah, I remember seeing this in the theater and just wanting it to end fifty times over. <laughs> I did not. I could not get into it. It was so fucking long and boring.
2: Right. Right. I didn't like it, so... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. <laughs> oh, well. I'm, a, I'm an appreciator of the film, but I can definitely see people's issues with it for sure. Yeah. And then one of the last ones was Aryan Papers that right. he had been working on for a very long time, and it was about the Holocaust... And this was based on a book too. Okay. And this was going to be his Holocaust movie, and he had everything ready to go. He had financing ready to go. He had <laughs> pre-production ready to go. Right. And then Spielberg did his one-two punch with Jurassic Park and Schindler's List in '93. Yeah. And he was set to start filming in December of '93. Oh. He went to see Schindler's List and said, "I can't, I can't do another one of these."
1: Yeah. Well, what are you gonna do?
2: but apparently he basically said you know what I'll just put this one off to the side and let some years pass and I'll do on something else and that's when he took his eyes off of that and turned his full attention to Eyes Wide Shut that's why Eyes Wide Shut was his last film gotcha
1: Yeah. All right. So, um, I mean, that's the list on Kubrick. Uh, what What do you think? If you, out of that list, what would you w- would want to see? If it could make it happen,
2: mine splits.
1: Yeah.
2: Very evenly, because I'd love to see his Napoleon film. Since yeah. he put so much time and, but he also put so much time and effort into AI. Yeah. And I know he was already, while he was alive, begging off of it to direct it. But I would love to see his visual, what he would have done visually with that film, because the film definitely visually feels very Spielberg. Right, okay. Because that's the only way he can stamp it, you know?
1: Uh, yeah, I think for me it's the Napoleon film. Granted, I mean, that means we probably wouldn't have Barry Lyndon. Barry Lyndon, but right. I don't know. If if it was compelling enough with the war scenes and all that, you know, maybe... maybe maybe it would be worth it i don't know right Uh, granted we are getting a napoleon film soon with
2: uh joaquin phoenix yeah 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 um so napoleon or ai would definitely be my my pick but yeah i I would very much like to see what all of that work that he the card catalog thing just sticks in my head Of like that is craziness right
1: to wrap this whole thing up and he's like how do you feel about a lot of what we're talked about it's, is it good or bad that none of these got made you know that it, that the world is the way it is f- film wise
2: uh, with some directors that we mentioned especially with like some of um, the Kubrick ones mhm I feel that's more tragic that we didn't get that, yeah. especially being that it, it came on. We won't let you do this passion project of yours because this movie similar to it came out and right, well. so right. That that's tragic to me because he's he, you know, we didn't get a lot out of Kubrick, right, right. And so to get something else that he was so passionate about, so I'd probably lean more towards tragic. I mean, you know, you definitely not when you get to like. Carpenters to Santa Claus. Yeah, yeah. Right. I
1: I I feel like on the whole, it's we're fine the way we are. Right. There's like a there's a handful of acceptances. You know what I mean. But a a lot of these I could live without. You know. Right. I for me, I think the the RoboCop Aronofsky is probably the the one thing in all of this that I really would want to see. Okay. Yeah.
2: If I would list two. Okay. It would be Napoleon. Yeah. And then the Vega brothers. I oh, right. That yeah. That's yes.
1: All right. I yeah. forgot about that one. Yeah. There's so we've yeah. had so many, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you're right. I, I, I think, yeah, but I think for the Vega brothers, it would have had to have been at the right time, you know? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Cause of the aging out thing, you know?
2: Right. Right. as much as I love the Irishman, unfortunately, old men move like old men. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was fun. Yeah. Yeah. And we've a fun one. killed a couple hours here, you know? Yeah, or at the very least, after editing, an hour and a half. <laughs> 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 but anyway. Well, then that's
1: going to stick a fork in old season five because she's a dunner.
2: Yeah, cut her open. Look at her. Oh, she's she's just perfectly cooked.
1: Yeah, right. She's got a perfect amount of pink in the middle. Ooh. A little bit of blood coming out. Watch yourself. (laughs) Because I like a medium rare. So
2: we'll take our time off, and then we'll see you guys in two months. Yeah, sounds great.
1: Um, In the meantime, uh, you know, bless this mess, and uh, (laughs) I'm going to hit the button. It says, out of here. Out of here, does it say that? No, but uh, (laughs) in my mind's eye, it does. All right, well, good luck with that.
0: We are ending our transmission.